This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. What if comparing car insurance rates was as easy as putting on your favorite podcast? With Progressive, it is. Just visit the Progressive website to quote with all the coverages you want. You'll see Progressive's direct rate, then their tool will provide options from other companies so you can compare. All you need to do is choose the rate and coverage you like. Quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Comparison rates not available in all states or situations. Prices vary based on how you buy. AI is making waves in every field it touches. President Biden is now on TikTok and the election draws closer each day. With so much going on in the world, it is hard to keep up with it all, let me tell you. Hi, I'm Kai Rizdal, the co-host of Make Me Smart. It's a podcast from Marketplace. And every weekday, Kimberly Adams and I break down the latest in business and the economy with short daily episodes to make it easy for you to stay in the know. Listen to Make Me Smart wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to the New Yorker Poetry Podcast. I'm Paul Muldoon, the poetry editor of the magazine, and it's a pleasure to welcome you here today. As many of you will know, on this program, we invite a poet to choose a poem from the archive of the New Yorker. She, in this case, reads it, we discuss it, and then we ask her to read one of her own poems that we've published in the magazine. My guest today is Leah Purpura, the recipient of many fellowships, including one from the National Endowment for the Arts, the Guggenheim Foundation, the Fulbright Foundation, among others. Welcome, Leah Purpura. Thank you so much, Paul. It's so good to be here. Now, the poem you've chosen uh, to read is by Carl Phillips. It's called White Dog. It was published in January... Uh, 2003, uh, the January 27th edition of the magazine, to be precise. And uh, what attracted you to White Dog? Is it a poem that you remember reading at the time, or have you uh, come upon it only recently? No, I've, I've had this poem in my great poems file since 2003. And there are so many New Yorker poems in that file. When you asked me to come in... That was the first place I went to look. And this poem um, has stayed with me since then. All these years, I remember first reading it. I remember the starkness of it, sort of both enticing and beckoning and also rattling me. And I remember it being sort of harrowing but also folding in a kind of really unexpected comfort. That's a lot for a poem to do, isn't it? Is. It is. Mean, for a to, short poem, too. Yes. To entice, first of all, I'd like you just to say a word or two about each of these rather splendid verbs that you've used. To entice. Tell us about the enticement of the poem. Poems in general, and this poem uh, particularly, hold phrases and turn them over and mull them and sort of use shifts of mind until the poet can feel his or her way into the next step or into the deepening uh, moment. And so 
there are all kinds of interesting repetitions in the poem, phrases that need to be gone back to or you feel the poet needs to go back to because he's not finished plumbing what the phrase is giving. And so it becomes a kind of um, both hypnotic and uh, kind of metaphysical gesture. And so it, and it's such a simple and clean poem also. So the enticement is in part by way of uh, those lines that keep repeating. So one's drawn into it and then one is rattled, to use your phrase. The rattling is in part idea-driven and in part, I think, driven by uh, his really beautiful and surprising use of meter. Um, There are parts of this poem that are tacked down with iambics, that sort of ba-bump, 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 ba-bump that we expect, and other parts just lift away from it. And the sort of moving into and out of meter causes a kind of anticipation and satisfaction, a little play between the two. You used the term a shift of ideas. You used the term metaphysical. It's the poem has a, a philosophical aspect, mm-hmm. for want of a better term. Is that would you agree with that? I would absolutely. There's an intense tension going on in this poem. There are a few different kinds of tensions going on. Um, it sort of wrestles with knowing, and it's a kind of slowed down, super clean micro-epistemology almost. Mm. Um, It sort of starts out in absolute certainty and then it complexes up and then it starts looking at very difficult dimensions of love, gets to be about the nature and act of merging and unmerging. Um, There's a tension or maybe a kinship between losing and letting go. It's a poem that on the page so actively wrangles um, and wrestles with ideas, mm-hmm. does not know where it's going, I, I believe. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, this has been such a wonderful preamble to the poem, <laughs> uh, but I do think at this stage we should probably hear it read, and then our listeners will uh, have a better grasp on, on our grasp of it, as it were. So this is uh, White Dog uh, by Carl Phillips, and it's been read here by Leah Purpura. White Dog. First snow, I release her into it. I know, released, she won't come back. This is different from letting what already we count as lost go. It is nothing like that. Also, It is not like wanting to learn what losing a thing we love feels like. Oh, yes, I love her. Released, she seems for a moment as if some part of me that almost I wouldn't mind understanding better. Is that not love? She seems a part of me, and then she seems entirely like what she is, a white dog, less white suddenly against the snow, who won't come back. I know that, and knowing it, I release her. It's as if 
I release her because I know. Huge amount happening again in such a short poem. You know, I find myself as a as a literalist, as it were, uh, wondering about why this dog has been released into the snow. I mean, I'm not sure if that's an appropriate question. Is it one that you find yourself entertaining at all? I do, and I I I did it first because it seems there's almost a cruelty there. Um, why let a dog go? if you know it won't come back. And because it's a dog, right, it, it hurts. It gets into the body in a particular way. Yes. I mean, if it were a wolf or a fox, one might imagine how it's been, you know, properly released back into its own um, milieu. Or but, a fly that you want to release. <laughs> right. But but it's it's hard, I suppose, to figure out what the psychological underpinning of this might be. So this poem leaves me with all kinds of questions. Will the dog be happier released? Is the speaker giving over to some kind of inevitability? Is this an inevitability that can only slowly be recognized by that mulling and turning over? that I was talking about earlier? Is it a generosity to let the dog go? Either way, it feels very much not like a mere trying out of the act of letting go. It's kind of a hard look examination of letting go. It's almost as if it's an ethical uh, consideration Mm -hmm. that one's following some uh, notion of whether or not, uh, as you suggest, the dog, and it's partly because of its whiteness, uh, might belong, might be more appropriate uh, to the snow because of its whiteness on the crudest of terms. That's a really beautiful way to think about it. the sort of absorption of dog into a different element um, where the dog is more almost at one. That sense of releasing the dog or giving the dog access to maybe her joy or lostness. Well, one can imagine if this were a poem by uh, William Carlos Williams or (laughs) H.D. or um, Amy Lowell or... um, um, one of the flint or or one of the kind of avowed um, imagists that that the white-on-white aspect of it might be um, much more to the fore. That's a really interesting way to think of it. Um, I'm usually really attuned to both in reading and and making myself. um, I'm usually really attuned to image. And I think in this particular poem, I I turned more toward or was tuned more toward the metaphysical of it. I think that's right. I think on balance, it is more about ideas than things. This very strange sense that it's speaking in some register that I can only barely hear, as all metaphysical poems do, with some aspect of mystery. Here, these, the sort of meta, metaphysical moves are so clear. And as with other metaphysical poems, 
it, the poem for me caused a kind of general slowing down, mm-hmm. a kind of different breathing, which kind of, I think in general, inches you closer to prayer, to having to sort of feel your way into understanding rather than actually think your way in. Um, and certain ways of knowing appear just at the edge of of consciousness. I'm sure there are moments where a philosophical texts and poetic texts, or what we tend to think of in general as belonging to one or other category, are actually almost indistinguishable. And this might be a case in point. That's, yeah. I think poems and the way uh, the ways that poems are actually made and present visually and engage with space and with white space and the breaking of sentences into lines offer a whole kind of you know structure for understanding that one can't get in in sort of straight up left margin to right margin text um, and I think this this poem in particular is using its its space and line and um, breaks in ways that help the argument along. Right. Well, just as you say that, it occurs to me that in some sense the poem itself is being released into a a, a white space on the yeah, page. Yeah, that's at least, when it, mm-hmm. at least when it appeared uh, in January twenty seventh, perhaps mm-hmm. a snowy mm-hmm. time. Who knows? in uh, 2003. So Mm -hmm. in in a way, it may be um, commenting on its its own uh, release into Mm -hmm. the world. It's so arguing with itself about releasing. Mm -hmm. um, And that second to last line there is, is really powerful for me. The line itself is, I release her. Mm -hmm. It's as if I release her. Mm -hmm. And Right there in that one line is the sort of doing and not doing, the sort of action that's both initiated and then like yanked back to conjecture. That's right. Yeah, it's, it's really fabulous. It's as if I release her, which is to say it's not that I quite release her. Mm-hmm. But then when we come round the corners of the last line, it's as if I release her because I know. And the burden of that is that, in fact the animal has been released. But there is that tension all along the way. All along, throughout throughout the poem. And uh, there's another great moment uh, in the poem, too, where this speaker wants you to understand a kind of rock-bottom uh, place from which he's working so that he can go off and argue or think further. And that is that little line break, oh, yes, mm-hmm. And there's a colon there. Oh, yes, I love her. Mm-hmm. Don't doubt that I love her. Don't doubt that this is an easy letting go, mm-hmm. the letting go after love has you know, diminished. This is a complicated letting go. Mm-hmm. But, of course, it may be arguing against itself, too. And, in fact, mm-hmm. despite my assertion that, oh, yes, I love her, actually, perhaps I don't love her at all. Or there are dimensions of love that are very, very difficult, and they require acts that seem to move directly against uh, what we think of traditionally or conventionally as gestures of love, holding 
holding close. Well, we've certainly held this poem rather <laughs> close. Uh, and perhaps we should leave White Dog for the moment. I think it's a poem to which we may return uh, again and again. But for the moment, we leave White Dog by Carl Phillips. And we'll turn to your own poem, First Leaf. Now, listeners will know that uh, part of the setup here is that the, the poet chooses a poem from the archive, as I mentioned, and then reads uh, her own poem. And I am fascinated again and again, despite the number of times we've uh, we, we've uh, we've we've had the podcast here from the New Yorker, by the number of times that there is a connection between the poem that's been chosen from the archive and the poem by the author herself. I, mean, I should, probably shouldn't be surprised <laughs> by that anymore. What do you think? The choosing or pairing of of this of, of of my poem First Leaf with White Dog was was so um sort of intuitive that it it wasn't until yesterday that I realized the first line of his poem of Carl Phillips' poem is First Snow and the title of mine is First Leaf. Um and you'd think the logic of that would be apparent to someone. You would uh, think that, but then, of course, one realizes, at least I, I think I've realized, that we understand so little of mm-hmm. what is happening uh, in our minds, that so much is going on below the surface. And even though we're quite attuned to language, for example, you know, the things that are staring us in the face. Um, the things that are waving at us and saying, hey, look look at this mm-hmm. connection. We miss them. That's exactly it. They fly right by with these enormous banners, like, you know, those planes at the beach. And somehow it's just not all that apparent. But um, there is a kinship. The, 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 of course, the first relationship, I suppose, the first point of contact would be the philosophical, uh, the metaphysical uh, musing and mulling over that uh, your poem um, also exhibits. I think that's true. Um, there's probably a similar kind of attempt to use the page as a kind of, you know, field of exploration, you know, to try to figure it out on the page. Um, mm-hmm. As you move down, as I move down to try to sort of um, this poem actually came unbelievably quickly, mm-hmm. um, and it was one of those kind of rare gift poems that I felt I was, you know, taking sort of dictation from from spirit, from mystery, from the muse, whatever you'd like to call it. It really came down whole. Let's hear it, First Leaf, by Leah Purpura. First Leaf. That yellow was a falling off, a fall for once I saw coming. It could, in its stillness, still be turned from. It was not yet ferocious. Its hold drew me, was a shiny switchplate in the otherwise dark, rash, ongoing green, a green so hungry for light and air that part gave up went alone, chose to leave, 
and by choosing embellishment, got seen. Beautiful. Thank you very much indeed. Hi, I'm Deborah Treisman, fiction editor of The New Yorker. Each week on the Writer's Voice podcast, New Yorker fiction writers read their newly published stories from the magazine. You can hear from authors like Colson Whitehead. Turner nudged Elwood, who had a look of horror on his face. They saw it. Griff wasn't going down. He was going to go for it, no matter what happened after. Or Joy Williams. Her father was silent. Slowly, he passed his hand over his hair. This usually meant that he was traveling to a place immune to her presence, a place that indeed contradicted her presence. She might as well go to lunch. Listen to new stories or dive into our archive of great fiction. You can find the work of your favorite fiction writers and discover new ones. Listen and follow The Writer's Voice wherever you get your podcasts. So that yellow was a falling off. One of the things I really admire about this poem was the is the constant uh, shift of meaning from line to line, the falling off, then the fall, a fall. It's beautifully uh, delicate, as, as would befit its topic, I suppose, or its subject matter. Again, it was that, you know, the word fall kept suggesting... It's many different, you know, meanings and dimensions, and it it kept kind of unfurling, you know, as I moved it down the page. It does. It it unfurls beautifully and without a sense of uh, it, the smart Alec. You know, one could imagine that uh, lingering over these various readings of the word fall, the autumn, the falling off, and the sense of uh, something not being at its best. Um, you know, it's there's nothing forced about it. It seems to um, come into the world quite naturally. That is, that's very good to hear. Force is never good in poems. <laughs> I think and, in general, in general, I think in that's general. Right. <laughs> I mean, some things are wonderfully forced, but but mm-hmm. in general, we we had, first of all, as readers, we resist force. Mm-hmm. Right? We resist being told what to think. I think one of the beauties, um, one of the deep pleasures of, let's just say, metaphor, um, is the way it both says and doesn't say, Mm -hmm. you know, an image or a scene both says and doesn't say, or says both things at once, or runs two tracks simultaneously. and in that sense, you know, one of the acts of poetry has so much more to do with allowing a reader to undergo an experience rather than simply consume it or simply be handed it. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's an interactive art. It's a deeply, deeply interactive art. Right. It's not a solitary uh, gesture. It's it is interactive, and one of the points on which this poem, um, you know, one one of the the, the points at which uh, the reader and the writer, let's call her, um, are in absolute agreement, I suppose, is in the 
sense of the justice of this simile or metaphor, where the leaf, I assume, a single leaf, is like a shiny switchplate. Mm-hmm. And that's what sets it apart from the the generality of what's going on. It's such a stunning simile. It was a shocker when it when it came, when it was given uh, to me. And it's one of the, I think, intuitive ways you get to work as a poet, um, except an image that comes, know its rightness, and not in that instant, and possibly not ever, until you need to have a conversation about it, um, push on why exactly the thing is right. Well, that's right. And one can imagine, and indeed one can imagine a a great poet um, taking the... um, the switchplate and everything that lies behind it, electricity, current, power, Mm. whatever, and going to town on it and with it. But Mm -hmm. uh, what's fabulous about this this particular poem and this particular poet is the reticence, you know, the the unwillingness to make a big deal of it, just uh, the, the, the willingness rather to accept it as it is and then kind of move on. I think that's something that comes by way of uh, reading deeply and understanding one's um, relationship, you know, as a reader to sort of mystery Mm -hmm. and, and understanding the enjoyment of that. And so I read Dickinson when I was really young Mm -hmm. and remember very, very clearly not understanding at all what she was saying and and thinking, I have no idea what this means, but this means. So it was kind of, it was an experience that sort of interlaced with uh, another kind of absorption, a trust in that kind of understanding or absorption and still you know, finding a kind of pleasure in it, not knowing at all what that, really what mm-hmm. that pleasure was all about. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm, I'm just thinking of lines like, um, a plank in reason broke, mm-hmm. and I dropped down and down. You know, as, as a reader, you have to allow a plank in reason to break and to understand there are other ways, there are other, there's, there are other musculatures with which to absorb and listen and read and understand. Right. Now, since you, it arises naturally in conversation, the plank in Dickinson has mm. much the same role, as it were, as the switchplate in <laughs> First Leaf. Would that be correct? It's the very first thing I thought about when um, you were circling around the switchplate. I thought, wow, that's how I felt about the plank in mm. reason. Well, it's brilliant. Listen, let's hear it again. We don't necessarily always do this, but we've talked so long about it and it's so delicate <laughs> in its in its uh, movement uh, that I would like to hear you read First Leaf again, if you wouldn't mind. Uh, I'd Leo love Propera. to. Let's hear it again. First Leaf. That yellow was a falling off, a fall for once I saw coming. It could, in its stillness, still be turned from. It was not yet ferocious, 
Its hold drew me was a shiny switch plate in the otherwise dark, rash, ongoing green, a green so hungry for light and air that part gave up, went alone, chose to leave, and by choosing embellishment, got seen. Leah Perpera, thank you so much for being with us today. I really appreciate uh, your oh. insights into your own poem and Carl Phillips' poem. Thank you. Thank you, Paul. It was such a pleasure to be here with you. So First Leaf by Leah Purpura, as well as Carl Phillips' poem, White Dog, may be found on newyorker.com. Carl Phillips' latest book of poems is Reconnaissance, and Leah Purpura's most recent collection is It Shouldn't Have Been Beautiful. You can subscribe to this podcast and other free New Yorker podcasts in the iTunes store. You can hear more poetry read by the authors in newyorker.com and on the digital edition for tablets and phones at no extra charge from the App Store or from Google Play. The theme music is The Pintigree Ferryman from the album The Highlander's Farewell by Alastair Fraser and Natalie Ross from Colburny Records. The New Yorker Poetry Podcast was produced by Jill Duboff of newyorker.com with help from Elizabeth Dennison. I'm Alex Schwartz. I'm Nomi Fry. I'm Vincent Cunningham, and this is Critics at Large, a New Yorker podcast for the culturally curious. Each week, we're going to talk about a big idea that's showing up across the cultural landscape, and we'll trace it through all the mediums we love. Books, movies, television, music, art. And I always want to talk about celebrity gossip, too. Of course. What are you guys excited to cover in the next few months? There's a new translation of The Iliad that's coming out, Emily Wilson. I'm really excited to see whether I can read The Iliad again, whether I'm that literate. I mean, the jury is out. I can't wait to hear Adam Driver go again in an Italian accent in Michael Mann's Ferrari. (laughs) He can't stop. I mean, and and bless him. I can't wait. Molto bene. Molto bene. (laughs) We hope you'll join us for new episodes each Thursday. Follow Critics at Large today, wherever you get podcasts. You really don't want to miss this. Don't. Don't miss this. Don't miss it. See you soon. (laughs) 